0: Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is this week in global development. I want to welcome uh, our two participants today. We've got two special guests. George Ingram is with us and Sasha Fisher. Hi, George. Hi, Sasha.
1: Hey, Raj. Hey, George.
2: Good morning,
0: Raj. Good to hear you. And nice to meet you, Sasha. Great to be with the two of you. Uh, We could talk about so many things, and there are a bunch of things in the news this week for our our avid DevEx readers. Once again, localization was very much in the news um and Devex has done its own analysis of how USAID is doing on localization and it looks like some pretty significant at least percentage increases in direct awards uh, as much as 170 percent increase that we found in 2022 still way off the the ultimate targets that the administration is shooting for but some real progress and you know this is a conversation that's been ongoing George you and I've had this quite a bit and Sasha you in particular Might have a lot to add here um for those listening who don't know you you're the co-ceo and co-founder of spark microgrants and so you work in east africa uh, at the very small grant level at the local level you've got a lot of experience in south sudan and and southern africa and india and uganda Uh, so i'd love to get your take on this and of course george people listening and know you well uh, as a senior fellow at the center for uh sustainable development of Brookings and also as the chair Emeritus at USGLC which you helped set up and the modernizing foreign assistance Network where you're a member of the executive committee so great to have the two of you here to talk about all these things and and let's just start on localization we can Sasha we haven't had a chance to have you on the show to talk about it what are you seeing from where you sit on the ground in East Africa what's your take on this localization debate and, and the latest news that we just reported
1: yeah, and thanks for hosting this. Um, great to chat with you guys here. I mean, first of all, it's—I mean—and I think USAID has tried to do this many times under many different administrators. So it's fantastic to see that there's some progress happening. And not all—we not, won't get the full vision of what we want to see in the future immediately. I think you know, with such a large bureaucratic agency, it'll take sort of steps to get there. Um, I was in Rwanda two weeks ago uh, in a conversation with. USAID sort of talking about the progress against localization, a lot of local organizations um, you know, pushing them to go even further. And I think the real tension that exists is it's a great that more money is getting to locally led organizations. That has to happen and that has to keep growing. And it's also not enough, right? If we're if USAID is still putting out the same bidding process, we're just transforming great local organizations to sort of go through the rough sort of prescriptive process that USAID has had in the past without actually looking at and investigating, you know, how do we move beyond the sort of classical prescriptive and somewhat colonial version of aid where we pre-prescribe outcomes and pre-prescribe how programs should be done and then people bid on who can implement that well, but actually open this up further and push this further so that one day every village, every neighborhood has capital to do what they want with it through an inclusive decision making process, not reaffirming sort of the elite domination that we see um, that was imposed by the colonial system, both globally and then also uh, sort of reestablished locally through those systems. So it's like, it's great to see some movement there. (laughs) That's, that always feels good. And it'd be nice to untangle. And I think, you know, administrative power is is very keen on this as well. It's hard to figure out the execution there, but, uh, to investigate further, even just the structures to which the bidding process can happen um, and make it more open so that local organizations can have their own vision and define for themselves the outcomes and programs that they want to be implementing, not just become a different implementation agency. Yeah,
0: you're bringing up some of the pitfalls that uh, an opinion writer for DevX brought up this week, uh, Benjamin Feet, who wrote a story was basically saying, you know, be careful what you wish for. That you know following this approach to localization where we try to move more direct funding to the, into the hands of local groups as you know we're we're showing through our data analysis seems to be happening that it's actually going to be potentially counterproductive that we're going to turn these local organizations into some kind of Frankenstein version of the traditional international agencies and that they will become you know more focused on compliance and more risk averse and have much higher overheads and become essentially unsustainable. Uh, George, you've been around this debate for a long time. I'm curious what your take is on both how USAID's is doing on this front and whether we're even on the right path.
2: First of all, I give aid a lot of credit for really stepping up and making a strong commitment to localization and not just in their own organization, but last year convincing another dozen large donors to sign on to the localization agenda. But it's difficult. And as Ben points out in that uh, op-ed, that opinion piece, um, you have to be careful what you wish for, because you don't want to turn local organizations into just new USAID contractors and implementers. Um, And he's absolutely right in this article that USAID is so constrained by oversight by the Congress and the media and the inspector generals and USAID's rules and regulations that try to make sure they can account for every dollar and ensure the programs are successful, it makes them risk adverse, and it makes it difficult for AID to really put the decision-making in local hands. And what's important is less than 25 percent of moving money to local organizations and Better the fifty percent, which is putting the decision making in the hand of local organizations, leaders, so that uh, the so that the dollars are used for local priorities. Because only if local priorities are drive the money, will it be successful and eff- effective. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious. I'd like to ask Sasha a question. Is she not only talks about localization like me, but she lives it? Um, It must be in her DNA. And part of the missing part of the conversation for me is what is the role of international expertise in a localization agenda? I mean, we live in a global world. There's lots of expertise all around the world. What does Sasha and her colleagues look for in engaging with organizations outside of Africa in their country. Yeah, it's
0: a great question, Sasha. What what do you think? Because there does seem, seem to be almost like a fetishization of local, right? How local can you get? We want to be extra local. But of course, there's international expertise that could be valuable. How do you see that play out? What's the balance in your mind?
1: Yeah, it's a fun question. I think sometimes there's also this a little bit of like, a there are multiple conversations happening at one time that maybe we're not always aligning, right? There's the localization conversation, there's decolonization, there's, uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think when we're, you know, when we're thinking about development, like, first of all, we don't want to be tokenistic about any of this stuff. So it's not really around, like, you know, just put up one face and then sort of put all the pressure on that one person to, achieve things is how do we change this system so that it is actually functioning better for all of the different members of that system? and right now it's it's not working for the poorest communities and the poorest people on the planet. So how do we get it to work for them? And then we can work backwards from there. I mean, my you know I, I think a, the question that we really are thinking about is how do we make the whole sector a have more capital in it, right? because more capital is owed back to These regions that have stimulated a lot of the economies of the global north. And how do we, you know, in the global north, work to advocate to reform the systems of how that capital is deployed so that it's protected against elite capture and actually gets to local communities? And how do we do that in a way that gets to, as George said, the greatest effectiveness? Not only is it the right thing to do, but actually is just the most effective thing to do. It's the lowest cost, highest ROI model there is, is to give money directly to local communities, rural villages, and let women and men, young and old, make their own decisions over that capital. Uh, and and the agency that is built through the exercise of like, yes, you actually do have control over that capital is probably one of the most useful things, right? In the U.S., we're, our egos are so big. We think we can do things and we think we're smarter than we actually are. If you look at our testing scores, right? We always think we test better than we actually do. <laughs> There's something about that that like, feeds into the entrepreneurial spirit. So how are we also building up that, that sense of, um, of ability and strength in the way that the capital gets deployed to make sure that it's not just the folks in the global north that have that sense of entitlement, but actually you know, everybody in uh, rural areas that are meant to receive this capital have that sense of entitlement over it as well. And I think that's the really sort of interesting question: is how how do we structure the the pools of capital, the billions of dollars that the World Bank is deploying, that USAID is deploying, that other uh, aid institutions are are deploying? How do we get it more directly to communities, but through a process that doesn't just reinstate the sort of old system? And that's that's a journey that we all go on together. Yeah, it, it
0: is. You know, there's such a danger in our space that, as you say, we think we're smarter than we are, and and that. I think leads to a lot of fads in development thinking right and there's always a new fad every few years where it feels like we've got our finger on the button of what's going to fix everything um, and i think the danger for localization is that it becomes that kind of a fad it, it's seen as a silver bullet but there's a lot of very thoughtful people working on it including at the agency at usaid who i, who I talked to who really get this and they're seeing it as You know not a silver bullet but rather a piece of that broader discussion you're talking about sasha about decolonization about essentially effectiveness of aid ultimately sustainability of aid right that you you find a way to actually get communities empowered to make decisions and to own their own development which is frankly how it works everywhere including in the richest countries in the world right so i guess that that tension is there that we could be on the edge of yet another development fad if we go too far in the direction of just the legalistic definitions, you know, what counts as local and how do we check the box versus are we really fundamentally changing what we do? And and I had a conversation with uh, Michelle Nunn for a DevEx event last week where we talked about this and, you know, she she mentions the importance of, of thinking about networks and what are the values of those networks, right? And George, you bring this up as well. You know, care has care international care us care India, you know, at what level should care India be seen as local versus international? And is there a value to being part of a a broader international network with all that technical expertise that it can be brought to bear? And I I guess there's some danger we might be missing that conversation going right to the lawyers and the accountants on this. What what do you think, George, Are, are we maybe missing that broader discussion about the importance of networks? or about you know focusing on the ultimate goal rather than these kind of intermediate steps?
2: I like Michelle's use of the term networks. I would say that my latest personal buzzword is an old word, which is partnering and collaboration. And I think if we put the localization agenda in Michelle's term of network or in my term of collaboration, then you would get Beyond an either or. Either it's localization or it's not localization. And you would get to the concept that the way, and this comes from a book I recently read about Ben Franklin, who he was a great collaborator in building associations and bringing different people together, that what we really should be seeking is to bring a diverse group of of experiences and minds together behind common problems. Um and CARE and SAVE and some of the other organizations do this through their network. And the question is there, who's driving the network? And is it just CARE USA, a, US driving the network? Or is it the network, the broad collection of network driving the issue? And if it's the broad collective driving it, then I think you've got a nice balance Between total localization and ignoring what the global community can bring to a local problem.
0: Yeah, I think Michelle's quote in the Newswire was None of the problems that we have in the world can be solved without scale, without advocacy, without innovation, without some of the market based approaches. And I guess there's something to be said for if you really are trying to bring innovation, that's hard to do if you're just at the local level. You don't see what's happening beyond you know, that very local environment. It's hard to do advocacy if you don't have allies, you know, outside of your community. It's hard to bring those market-based approaches if you don't bring in some, you know, technical expertise from outside, perhaps. So there is some balance there, maybe. I don't know, Sasha, you work at these very, very local levels. How does it sound to you when you hear Michelle's quote? Does that resonate with you? Or do you think we're, we're maybe missing the boat sitting here in Washington, D.C.?
1: I mean, such good commentary um, from from all three of you. The I think as you were saying that around the local and the global, it's really not, again, it's not about the either or, right? So one of my themes from the last few years is like nothing is in binaries. (laughs) Like it's not local or global and they literally cannot exist without the other. At the village level, uh, at Spark, we have worked with over 800 villages across six countries and we're working on nationalizing programs in Rwanda and Malawi and um, one of the things that we we see and we hear a lot from our uh, community facilitators is like at the village level you have dynamics around you know a handful of local elite men having greater hardened power both economic political you know and also social power that sort of represents also what's happening at the global level where you have hardened power in a few and a lot of people not having political economic and social power and so they they're already linked. It's not like they're separate today. And so any solution going forward also must be linked. Um, What the national policy is or the global policy or the policy at USAID for delivering aid capital uh, will, will regulate how community members at the most local level get to engage in that process and how community members that engage in that process also will inform its evolution. And I was sort of curious, George, to your point around the collaboration side, like how you see... I think that's such a beautiful component of this, and sort of, you know, is a rival to um, the more traditional approach, which has been very sort of top down, power over. How do we shift towards a culture that's more collaboration um, on the aid front? So even just in the way that aid is delivered, it is able to stimulate that further.
2: Great question, and I wish I had the right answers. Uh, I've got a couple of insights. One in organizations, you need to create incentives for collaboration, particularly in government bureaucracies. And I use that term, not derogatory, but in any large organization, it's people don't have time and they don't have the incentive to work outside their organizations. But if you you rewarded people for collaborating with other organizations, with other individuals. That's one way. A second way is to have it part of the mission. For USAID, the Congress, the next time they amend the Foreign Assistance Act, they should put collaboration as to one of the missions and they should they should commit themselves to to being to helping AID be less risk adverse and to encourage AID to be innovative. And take risk, and that requires collaboration with other organizations. You know, Sasha and Raj. My part of my education on localization was 15 years ago, reading a book by Ritu Sharma, Teach a Woman, and she spent time living with women in in rural villages in developing countries. And what she came away with was being impressed with how many internal, how how powerful and strong those women were, how they had the answers to their priorities. What they needed was a little bit of outside resources and expertise. Yeah, that's
0: that's right. I think that's what so many people who work in this community come away with. Right, they come away from their experiences uh, traveling and working in the global south and say, boy, a lot of the answers are there. There's tremendous talent, more than ever before. You know, Why are we still stuck to this old model?
1: Hi, I'm Kate Warren, executive editor at DevEx. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the sustainable development goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun to read free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today.
0: Rob Merrick, our correspondent based in London, had a story this week about how the UK government, which has been both cutting aid, you know, they used to have a 0.7% target as a percentage of their gross national income. They dropped that down to 0.5%. And then in addition to that, almost a third of their aid budget is now going to co- the, the cost of, of supporting refugees who have made it to the UK. So there's a big debate, should that count even as foreign assistance? And it looks like based on some of our reporting that the OECD DAC is not going to count that as foreign assistance, which is a big issue for the U.K. government because they now need to find a few billion pounds a year. But the big question happening in the U.K., and as we reported, is they're looking at this total number and saying, well, it's gone down quite a bit. And these cuts translate into into real lives. Our headline is thousands will die from ongoing aid cuts the U.K. government admits. They were forced to admit so on the one hand we're kind of having this old debate about this total amounts of money sasha you said at the beginning that still matters we need we need more funding um, while at the same time we need to have this much more modern conversation including with elected officials like in the us congress about the right way to do this and george you talk about the foreign assistance act and, and revising it to talk about collaboration so it's it's a bit of a tension. you need you know Kind of enlightened elected officials who understand these two things that we need more but we need smarter aid and it feels to me george like we're kind of going in the opposite direction of that i mean both if you look at what's happening in the uk but also you look at what's happening in the u.s congress and the kind of further politicization of aid something you work so hard to avoid and to thwart is that how you see it too what what do you think we're where do you think this debate happens the one we're having the three of us when it comes to Capitol Hill or it comes to the British Parliament?
2: Well, I was actually horrified, but not surprised to see the results of that DevEx article on the impact of the reduction in the UK funding. And I have to give a lot of credit to Andrew Mitchell for highlighting the impact and for Sarah Champion, who actually was in Washington meeting with some of us at Brookings a month ago, on, on trying to push back. I think on the U.S. Congress, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not currently worried that the U.K. is setting a model for where the bilateral donors are going. I think it's unfortunate and wrong that many Europeans are counting foreign aid going to support uh, refugees in their countries as foreign aid. That should not be counted as foreign aid. On the U.S. Congress, I think that the support that USGLC and Care and Save and World Vision and CRS and others have built up in the Congress is pretty strong. And they bring to that not just their lobby and advocacy opportunities in Washington, they bring networks across America and they bring to the table the voices of of liberal, conservative, Democrats, Republicans, independents, to the importance of the U.S. engaging in the world in foreign assistance. So I'm, I'm only worried that aid may be, foreign aid may be, be cut a few percentage, not that it's really going to be seriously damaged as what's happened in the U.K.
0: Sasha, when you look on the ground in places like Malawi and Rwanda, do these debates in donor capitals filter down? In tangible ways, are you seeing, you know, budget cuts in real ways in terms of how aid is is coming into these environments and being delivered? Uh, are you seeing progress in terms of the some of the aid effectiveness and localization agendas that some of these donors are pushing? What do you see there?
1: I don't know how much I, I can speak to the specific countries because it sort of depends on the priority regions for each donor country. But the cuts definitely make a difference, and you see if cuts happen, you know. Refugees having less support to feed their families uh, you know, as a direct result of cuts and governments having less capacity to to deliver on really basic basic fundamental programs. But I think I want to go back for a moment to the just what's happening in the UK and the US is I mean and and globally like this is aligning with a lot of the more insular sort of looking of these countries like gazing inward and more of these nationalistic trends um, that I think is really quite dangerous for how the foreign aid budgets are getting um built and spent. I mean, we see I think it often gets seen as these foreign aid budgets are sort of like a nice to have. And in reality, that's that shouldn't be the way that we look at this. These are, first of all, you know, Our countries have made a lot of money off of the regions that aid money is getting sent to. And so this shouldn't be seen as a nice to have, but we, we owe these regions money and investment. And two, I mean, if we look at the geopolitics of what's happening also, you know, I mean, a lot of countries see the importance of investing and winning over support of uh, countries in the global South, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a huge amount of political and economic power building at the moment. I mean, Russia just hosted their, attempted to host their Africa summit. You know, the fact that, you know, they're in the middle of everything they're in the middle of and they're still trying to cultivate relationships with African leaders is really something. Um, So I think it's a shame that we see it as this sort of, as something that is optional. Um, It's certainly not optional for, you know, the families who are dependent on this, on this resourcing for feeding their families every day. Um, but more importantly, it's just, it's, it's the wrong thing to be doing. It's not smart of our countries to be slashing and looking more internal. It doesn't actually serve our own citizens any better to be doing that.
2: You know, Raj, U.S. assistance has a pretty strong network, I would use that term, of humanitarian interests, our economic interest, our security interest, And woven throughout that is our diaspora interest, is all of the Americans who have come from other countries around the world who have those diaspora networks. So I'm optimistic about maintaining the foreign aid budget. I'm less optimistic about growing it to where it should be.
0: Yeah, that's a a great point. And maintaining it, you know, has relied on essentially gridlock in Washington, right? We've had this benefit of the way that our system is structured and having you know a challenge that even if the political winds are shifting in an anti-aid direction, they haven't been able to get far enough to be able to enact significant cuts. There may be proposed cuts that are significant, but it's been hard to actually see them play out in reality in a way that's different from the UK system and where their political winds have led very directly to significant cuts. But it still doesn't mean that the debate couldn't come to the U.S. and that the that aid couldn't be further politicized as it's been in the U.K. And we've seen some of that with PEPFAR recently, for example, which is certainly troubling to a lot of people in the community. You know, we're, we're getting close here on time, but I, I'd love to just get everybody's take on a couple of the other stories that, that have come up this week. And, you know, maybe uh, the big one that, that a lot of people are talking about in Washington, D.C., at least, is around the World Bank. And obviously, we've got a new president there in Ajay Banga and Devex had a scoop. My colleague, Advas Aldinger, uh, had a story that there's going to be a new policy that World Bank Group employees are going to be required to go back into the office four days a week starting in September. So the kind of office wars are coming to global development in a way they've already come certainly to big corporate uh, you know workplaces around the world. Does this matter to either of you? Do you have a take on on whether an institution like the World Bank is better off having its employees in headquarters? Obviously they have lots of big, beautiful, and expensive real estate in downtown Washington, or is this just a, a minor internal issue from your perspective?
2: Raj, let me address that. I think this is gonna be a major issue for the next decade. Um, COVID introduced the virtual world, which has disrupted the work world both for the public sector and the private sector. We're dealing with that at Brookings now. And to be personal about it, somebody who's been around as long as I have knows all of my colleagues at Brookings has a lot of network in Washington, a virtual world works great, but for young people coming into the workplace, it doesn't work so well because they don't have that network of people. They don't know how the systems work. And, And those of us who have gotten comfortable in a virtual world need to move outside of that comfort space and come back to the office more. And every organization is going to have to deal with this over the next few years and figure out what system works best for them. Um, My son, who works for a company, has always been in a virtual space. And he, you know, I think uh, he would not function well in a in a traditional office so it's a very personal issue that's going to be with us for a long time and sasha i,
0: I know you know for a lot of international organizations it's kind of an equity issue because you know they might say the staff that are working in the global south they don't have a choice like this they, they may not have internet connections that are reliable enough at home they may not have the ability to to have extra space in which to have an office or to work How how does this kind of debate about work from home, return to office for the World Bank and beyond, how does it look to you from where you sit?
1: We've had a lot of debates internally at Spark around this, and a a lot of our team wanted to get back to the office uh, in Rwanda and Uganda and and some of the other countries where there are teams. Um, So, you know, I think it's partially like, what does your team want? (laughs) I think for the World Bank, it's a huge opportunity for new leadership. I mean, this is fantastic that uh, that we have a new leader. And I think we sort of owe him some space to be able to build relations within the bank and, and set the policies that will work for this transition period. You know, it's really hard to work and, and have any sort of significant change process happen in any team or institution, whether it's three people or you know, thousands of people, unless you have face to face time and build the relationship so that you can build trust. Nothing's going to move unless there's trust there. Um, and so, if you don't trust your colleague, right, you're not really going to collaborate with them. So, I, I feel like we just sort of owe him some space to to set this up in the way that he wants. And um, hopefully, it, it works for the employees or they'll figure that out, out over time. Uh, but I do. I do really value that in-person time, I think is sometimes, um, underappreciated when we think everything is more efficient online.
0: Yeah. I've heard that from many other executives that, you know, if you're trying to do change or if you're trying to do innovation, that it really helps to be in person because, you know, in the end, we're not robots. We are human and trust is key when you want to do something different or you want to be really creative. And, uh, well, we've all kind of found ways to work virtually in ways often that are really efficient. But but you're right, it can be hard, especially in a big institution like the World Bank with more than 10,000 employees. Uh, it can be hard to build that culture um, and to create that culture. I had the chance to, to moderate the session, kind of an opening session for the World Bank's human development teams that gathered. And it was an amazing site because it was, a, I guess, about 1,400 people in a big ballroom in Washington, D.C., And they hadn't seen each other in three years because of COVID. And so everybody was hugging and and saying hi. And it was kind of an amazing environment. Uh, And you imagine, you know, that at an even bigger scale across the World Bank Group and people just not having a chance to connect in person. Um, Figuring this thing out is going to be pretty important uh, for for Ajay Banga as he he takes the reins there at the bank. Anything else that comes to mind for the two of you
2: before we uh, close up here? George? Uh, I just want to say that... um... I'm really impressed with the work that Sasha's doing and how she's living the localization agenda. And for you, Raj, I'm going to be quoting you that it's the dysfunction in our system that is protecting the foreign assistance budget. I'd never thought about it in those terms, uh, but our less efficient system political system than the British where the government controls the parliament, uh, you know, our our dysfunction is working to our advantage.
1: Yeah, thanks. I think it gives me a lot, you know, connecting with both of you today and hearing about these, you know, just having a discussion around these topics around localization, the foreign aid budget, how we can reform things for the better. George, your perspective here and Raj for hosting these conversations regularly, like gives me a little bit more hope that we're all here showing up to attempt to create some of the changes that are needed in this space. And hopefully it can keep Keep growing, and other folks can challenge us, and it sort of lives on into the future. So, uh, appreciating this, and hoping for you know even greater visions around the localization space and increased spending, and um, grateful for the work you both are doing.
0: Yeah, well, thanks to the two of you. I, you know, I've done some writing on this localization trend, and and I think one of the things that always is fascinating is even if the financial incentives point toward status quo in the way that aid is structured. Um, actually the people, when you talk to global development professionals who have dedicated their lives and careers to this work, they are demanding to see a change. You know, Even if that change might actually hurt their own organization in a way, reduce their own budget, there's a, there's a lot more pressure than I've ever seen to say, we've got to find another way to do this. The challenges are just getting too great. And the models we've had uh, and, and relied on in the past just aren't fit for purpose anymore. So, Um, I think it's an important debate, it's an important conversation. We certainly have it every day here at DevEx with our audience around the world of global development professionals. And it's been such a treat to talk to the two of you today, George Ingram, Sasha Fisher. Thank you so much for being a part of This Week in Global Development.
1: Thank you, Raj. Thank you, George. And thanks everybody who's doing the good work out there. Thank you,
2: Raj.
0: This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.